Okay. Well, here we go again. Um, oops. Oh, that's okay. I'll get you signed in here. I think I was going to say, Brandon, I think I need you too. Get you signed in there before I mark people late. Um, so hopefully the exam wasn't that bad, horrible. I didn't get monstrance number of emails saying help. So hopefully it wasn't too bad. That is due today, so I'll take it after class is fine, along with homework number seven. So we'll get those done and caught up. And tomorrow is Professor DeLisi's lecture, which I'm sure he's mentioned to you. So if you would like to come to that, you're welcome. You're welcome to come. That's tomorrow at 7 p.m. in Cooper 204. My other class asked about it, so I'll offer the same thing here. I don't know if he offered you credit for it. They asked for extra credit points if they showed up. I said I'd offer five points. I know it's not a lot. If you're going to be here anyway and you want to show up and I see you there, I'll give you five points. If you're not, it's not really going to hurt you a lot. So it's not worth driving all the way back in if you're you know, way away or you're not going to be here close to that anyway. But if you do want to come up, since I offered that to my other class, I'd offer the same thing to, to you guys. So if you want to come, just make sure I see you there so I can give you credit. But otherwise, it's not going to make a big difference in your grade, but five points is five points. So. Um, solar observations project is due on Friday. If you're going to bring it in, you probably want to bring it in Thursday if you want to bring in printouts or anything. Yeah? What time is it? 7 o'clock. And I'm not sure, I'm estimating probably about an hour. <coughs> I didn't, didn't talk to me about the exact, but yeah, it's, it's in the evening. So solar observations, if you're going to bring it in and you know, if you're going to have the graphs, if you don't want to have to scan anything, you can of course scan and email it on Friday as well. I'll take it through the end of the day Friday. So I do need that this weekend so I can get those graded as we have lots of other, little, a few other things coming up. Quiz 7 is also up now and available for you. Um, it's available for a week from today through the 1st of May. And that's chapters 15 and 16. 15 we finished, 16 we'll get through most of today. And then homework number eight, last one. Yay! Last one is due on May 4th, which is the last day of regular lecture class. So, and I'll hand that out now for you. There you go, sir. So I'll give you those two. And then the only other thing coming up that's not on there, there is one more quiz that's actually the same day on the 4th. Actually the last quiz will be in class on the 4th. So sort of like we did the one quiz earlier. There you go, there you go, and there you go. And then the final exam which is two weeks from today. And then you're through and done with me. So any questions on what's coming up? No? Okay. Here's the last homework. Okay. Picture of the day for today. Actually a short video. It's only about 30 seconds long. And this is taken by the Rosetta spacecraft. And it's, it's sort of showing its approach towards this asteroid. And then as it leaves it. So it actually comes very close to an asteroid. And then you'll see it trailing along as we go, through, go beyond. A couple things you'll notice about this as you do. First of all, you notice that the asteroid isn't, let it start here, hopefully it'll load. The asteroid isn't really round. Most of the objects that we look at 
in the universe. A lot of the things we look at are very round shaped. This is much more irregularly shaped simply because its gravity is so much lower. It doesn't have a strong gravity to pull it up into a sphere the way the sun or another star does or even one of the planets. So it's only about 100 kilometers across. Not, not really very big. And the other thing you'll notice as we get a little closer to it here, you'll start to notice impact craters on it. And you'll see that it's covered with craters just like the moon and any of the other planets in the solar system. It's got as many you know, craters on, them, on it as some of the other objects do. And that just goes showing that there is a lot of, a lot of impacts. There's been a lot of meteors around in the, in the solar system and everything has been hit at one point or other. What's going on in this spacecraft, it actually didn't get sent out to visit this asteroid. It was sort of an additional thing. It happened to go close to it when they set up the orbit. This Rosetta spacecraft is actually going towards a comet and is actually going to go into orbit around a comet to study a comet in two, two years, 2014, it was supposed to reach the comet. So it's actually going to go into orbit around a comet and as part of that it happened to fly by this asteroid and get some very nice close images of a relatively tiny asteroid. It also has, this Rosetta spacecraft has a lander. It actually has a piece that it's going to send out that will actually be supposed to anchor itself into the nucleus of the comet itself and be able to take samples. So it's supposed to give us some very interesting things coming up in a couple years to learn more about, a lot more detail about comets specifically. So picture or video of the day. Question? Yes, sir. Well, they're going to learn more about the comet itself and what comets, what they're made up of, how they work. And a big thing, comets are very likely leftover pieces of the very early solar system. So it's going to tell us a lot more about what things were like in that early history when the Earth and the planets were forming. Which, you know, that all gets erased. All that information, when the Earth gets melted and erased, all that changes. So we don't know what the Earth was really like, what the, what the materials would have been like that long ago. So this is going to tell us a lot more what that type of thing was, was like. So being able to orbit the comet, we've flown by comets, we've actually uh, crashed, a, crashed a spacecraft into a comet and we're able to do that to try to study it. This time we'll actually be able to orbit and look at it. And it's the difference of being able to orbit it and go back and look at things again and again and again instead of flying by. We got our one view, but if there was something interesting on that asteroid, and we can't turn around and go back and look at it again. So being in orbit is a big help being able to see things more than one time. Others? Okay. Let's go back to chapter 15 then. We were almost done with chapter 15. So let's get started there. And I'd, we're looking at active galaxies. And this was the last picture I'd shown was just showing you some of the jets and some of the material that we see, interesting things that we see going on from the, act, from the active galaxies. And in fact, in this one you can see the galaxy core here and you can see again number of jets, jets going off on either side. And if you look deep down in, you can almost see some of the disk material perhaps, some of the disk material around as you're getting much, much closer to the center. You've got a lot of material that's starting to build up around what would be the central, central black hole. So that's where we finished up last time. And again, I only have a couple more slides for this chapter and we're going to go on to 16. But this is some of the evidence that there are black holes at the center of the uh, centers of some of these galaxies. Because we, we, again, we can't see a black hole. So I can't just go say, yeah, there it is, as you can go see. Well, is there a star there? You know, I could tell you that. But 
the evidence for black holes, in another case, this is the great elliptical galaxy in Virgo, M87. So a big, giant elliptical galaxy. And if we look, it's very bright down at the core. So there's a lot of material spiraling around there. But it's moving very quickly. When we look at it and we zoom in, there's the core with that jet that we looked at before. When we look at just that core and you take a spectrum of one side and a spectrum of the other, well, it's made up of all hydrogen, right? Almost all hydrogen, like everything else in the universe. But if we look at one side, one side is redshifted. It's moving away from us very quickly. The other side is blue shifted and moving towards us very quickly. So it's showing you a rotation, that this is rotating. And part of this is going into the projector screen. And part of it's coming out. So it's rotating around there very quickly. We can measure that by measuring the amount of the Doppler shift and find out how quick it is actually rotating. And with how fast it's rotating, it tells us there's got to be a lot of mass down there. A lot, of, a lot of mass. We're talking many millions to billions of solar times the mass of the sun concentrated in the central portion of this galaxy. It gives us good evidence that there's likely a black hole there. I mean, a black hole is the one thing that will explain all of the things that we see about these, these objects. Now you might expect a you know, black hole is spiraling in all this material. It's heating it up to incredibly high temperatures, you know, milli many millions of degrees. And if you recall, we talked about the sun. The sun at the center is emitting, you know, has 10, 10, 15 million degrees, very, very hot. It's emitting X-rays and gamma rays. So why is the black hole emitting all this other radiation? And what happens is you might see a number of things. It might depend really on how you're looking at it. And there are some areas, some galaxies that you might look at that emit primarily infrared radiation. And what might happen here is that you still have the same, same situation. It's again a matter of perspective and how you're looking at it. When you're looking straight down, you get almost that whole band of radiation. You see everything from x-rays, gamma rays, a lot of those. But you also see the visible and infrared light. When you're looking through that disk, remember there's a disk of material around that black hole. When you try to look through that disk, it's just like looking through the galaxy. When you try to look through the galaxy, it's hard to see through it. You can't see through all that dust. All the material is constantly getting absorbed and re-emitted and consequently slowly lengthening its wavelength, slowly losing energy as it works its way out. And most of it comes out primarily as infrared radiation. So again, it's a matter of perspective as to how you look at it, how you're looking at it. When you look through that disk, when you're looking at it on the edge, you tend to see more infrared radiation and less of that intense radiation coming straight out. It constantly gets what we call reprocessed. So it absorbs the X-rays absorbs, creates gamma rays. Gamma rays are, create, are absorbed and maybe X-rays are emitted. So for each gamma ray, you might get a dozen X-rays coming out. And then for each X-ray, they get absorbed as you work your way through this dust and then get turned into ultraviolet, into visible, and finally into infrared as you slowly work your way outward from the black hole. So that's, again, what you might expect with that intense radiation of the black hole. Some of the times we don't see it because there's so much material right around that black hole that constantly changes essentially the form of the radiation. Okay. Finally, one of the types of radiation that we see is called synchrotron radiation. 
And this is a very strong radiation, very strong in the radio part of the spectrum. And synchrotron radiation occurs when you have a strong magnetic field and magnetic fields like to confine charged particles. Charged particles will follow along magnetic fields. So when you have electrons moving through this magnetic field, they won't move this way, they won't go this way. They're going to go right around and they kind of loop around in a little spiral right around, a magnetic, right around the magnetic field lines. It keeps them confined very well. As they do that, you have an accelerating charged particle. It's emitting radiation and it's emitting a lot of radio radiation. What we end up seeing is that is the different type of a spectrum. Again, if you remember this purple line, that's what you see from a star. That's thermal, that's what we call thermal black body radiation. Has a peak at some point and for the sun in the visible part of the spectrum. Drops off really, really quickly when you get towards those short wavelengths and drops off much slower when you get to higher wavelengths, radio wavelengths. But synchrotron radiation sort of is almost a straight line, very intense in the radio portion of the spectrum. And still intense, but much less so than it is here when you get in towards the higher energy portions. So you have this type of radiation, and that's a lot of what we see, but it's a distinct. If you see and you take measurements of these galaxies in this area around the black hole, and you can measure how bright it is in the radio and how bright it is in the infrared and in the visible and in the you know, ultraviolet into the x-rays, and you compare that, you can sort of plot it out and find out, well, is it synchrotron radiation? Does it follow this type of spectrum? You know, where it's more intense in the radio, or is it more of a thermal spectrum? So it's one of the things that will differentiate when we look at a normal galaxy. A normal galaxy would give you something very much like this purple curve, whereas an active galaxy will tend to give you something bluer. You have a lot more energy, a lot more, a lot stronger magnetic field, and much more intense uh, synchrotron radiation. And just by looking at it, just by observing it, we can see the difference between that and the thermal radiation. Okay, chapter 15. Questions? Questions? I'll do this, put up the summary again here in a second. Okay. So for chapter 15, we looked at, we classified the galaxies, and really there's no, there's no physical reason for the classification. It's all done on how they look. So galaxies looked like spirals, galaxies looked elliptical, galaxies looked sort of like, but there wasn't a physical basis like there was with the stars. When we classified stars, I told you, eventually it became a temperature sequence. You could classify them and say, well, these stars are this temperature and these are this. That doesn't work for galaxies, at least not yet. Maybe there's something we're going to find out later as to why galaxies form in different types. But the, right now, it's just according to how the galaxies looked. We had the different types. There were five of them. Spiral, barred spiral were the two spiral types. Elliptical, irregular, and I didn't put the lenticulars up there, but lenticulars were the ones that were nice and flattened like a spiral galaxy, but didn't have the gas and dust. So they behaved like elliptical galaxies in some way, except they were extremely flattened into a disk. There are a couple of the objects that astronomers call standard candles just meaning that they're all exactly the same brightness. So if you have a standard candle, if you have a candle that is so bright, you know exactly how bright it is, whether it's here right real next to you and looks real bright, or it's way across the room and looks a lot fainter. Two examples of that that we've used are the RR Lyrae stars and the Type 1 supernovae. They're all 
really essentially is, is bright. So it doesn't matter where I see one, if I see one in our galaxy, if I see one in another galaxy, or in the case of a supernova in a very distant galaxy, where I can, am able to see and identify it as a type 1 supernova, I know exactly how bright it is, how bright it should be. Once I know how bright something really is, then I can determine the distance. I know how bright it's supposed to be. When I just look at something randomly out there at a star, you know, I can't tell, is it really, really bright and really far away? Or is it really, really faint and really, really close to me? We don't know that distance. We need to know that true brightness in order to help us determine the distances. And this is one of our best ways of getting distances. Uh, within our galaxy, Milky, Milky Way is our galaxy. And we're a cluster, a group of galaxies, 40-some galaxies that make up our local group. There's three large spiral galaxies and a bunch of little tiny galaxies. That's a relatively small cluster of galaxies. We're actually sort of at the edge of the Virgo, what we call the Virgo cluster. And other galaxies may contain not just thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of galaxies. So it may contain many, many more galaxies than our little tiny group. And then we looked at Hubble's law. Hubble's law just really says that the faster, the, fur the further a galaxy is away from us, the faster it's moving away from us. We like that because we're relating distance to something very easy to measure. I can measure the redshift of that galaxy very easily. All I got to do is be able to take a spectrum of it. See where the hydrogen lines are, how far shifted are they. I can immediately find out how far away it is because once I measure that velocity. So the faster it's moving, the further away it is. And that gives us a very good way of measuring distances out to the edge of the universe. And as you recall, we looked at all those other methods, but none of them worked very far out. You know, maybe even the supernovae were only visible you know, a third of the way across the universe. So anything further than that, we have to depend on Hubble's law. And then last time we talked about the active galaxies. And they're much more luminous than normal galaxies. And their radiation is not not primarily by stars. Yes, there are stars there too, so you see some component like that. But there's a lot more radiation that looks like the synchrotron radiation that we mentioned a few minutes ago. Some of the different types of active galaxies were Seifert galaxies, radio galaxies, and quasars. And the thing they have in common is they all have a very small core at the center. So there's something very, very small, something very tiny, but very massive and very capable of producing a lot of energy, going, something going on at the core. And they may emit high-speed jets. Finally, the active galaxies, what we think is going on here is that there's a supermassive black hole there. So not, a, not, a, not something the mass of the sun, or you know, mass, several times the mass of the sun, but millions to billions of times the mass of the sun. Yes, sir? I had a question about the, uh, you know, like the safer mm -hmm. and K, and quasar Quasars, yeah. Yeah, and how I know that they have small cores. Mm -hmm. And I know the reason for that is because um, I think it was like the, uh, the luminosity the luminosity varies. is one way we know that where the energy has to be coming from something very tiny. But why, why is that? Why, how do we know that just because it, it If something fluctuates, it can't get the overall brightness of the object can't get brighter and fainter on a scale shorter than it takes light to travel across it. Because if the whole thing gets brighter, if you imagine it getting brighter, this side's going to get brighter. We're going to see this side get brighter first, right? And then this side. So there's some time delay between those, depending on how big it is. 
You know, if it's, a, if it's the size of the solar system, that would be about a day. Take about a day for sun for light to travel across the solar system. So if this gets brighter, it's still going to keep getting brighter until the, we get the light from the other side that got brighter a day later. Then it could start to get fainter again. If it were smaller, if it were only a light hour across, then it could vary in an hour. If we're a light year across, then it's going to take a year. This is going to get, get, it's going to get brighter. This side's going to get brighter. A year later, okay, it's still getting bright. Now we're done. Now we can start getting. It's not just that it gets brighter. It might get brighter real quick, like a supernova blowing up. But in terms of going up and down and up and down, in order for it to change like that, it has to be very, very tiny. So that's what we think. We think it's a black hole there at the center that is matter falling into that that is giving us the, that is powering that active galaxy. Questions on 15? We're going to come back to some of this in chapter 16 in a minute, but no, no. Going once, going twice, gone. All right. On to chapter 16. And then we've got 16, 17, and 18 to do, so we're almost Almost done. Um, 16 is again, we're still, we're still on galaxies here. Galaxies and dark matter. And we're going to come back. We talked about dark matter a little bit earlier uh, when, we, when we mentioned the, talked about the Milky Way. And I showed you, I think one of the things I showed you was how the stars moved in the Milky Way. And that gave us some in indication that there was more matter out there in our galaxy than we could actually see. Some kind of dark matter. And that's what this chapter is going to be sort of emphasizing a little bit more on that. And what we're going to look at, first of all, is what, is dark, what dark matter might be. We don't know for sure. So I'll give you the answer already. I can't tell you for sure what dark matter is. It's something, but there's evidence that it is out there. Galaxy collisions. How did galaxies form? We're coming back. As I said, we'd come back to some of this. We're going to look a little bit more at black holes and active galaxies. And then leading into the next chapter, which is sort of the entire universe, the history of the universe in one chapter, is looking at the universe on the very largest scales. So, you know, where our solar system is nothing, where our galaxy is nothing, where our cluster of galaxies is nothing, we're looking at the entire universe at one time, all the galaxies that we can see. And well, that'll lead into our next chapter, to chapter 17, which talks about what we call cosmology, or the very largest scales in the history, the birth and death of the universe. So, this is what I showed you uh, when we talked about our galaxy. We looked at what we call the rotation curve. And what that showed you was that as you went at different distances from the galaxy, how fast were the stars moving? So the stars were rotating at a certain velocity. 50, 100, 200, 300 kilometers per second, depending on the galaxy. How much mass there is would, of course, affect that. But we can measure, so we can look at stars here, we can look at stars here, we can look at stars here. And every galaxy we look at always pretty much levels off here. And if you recall when we talked about our Milky Way, that was a problem. Because once you get to the edge of the galaxy, once you're looking beyond most of the matter, once most of the matter is concentrated in here, Newton and Einstein's gravity both tell you that this velocity should start to slow down. So the, they should start moving slower and slower and it eventually should start dropping off once you get beyond the edge of the matter. And not just to the very edge of the visible galaxy here, but if you're in here and 99% of the mass is already inside what you're orbiting, then you should start, then the, the curve should start dropping. 
We don't see that in these stars. We don't see that in these. So it tells us, again, one of two things. It tells us either that there's a lot more matter out here that we can't see. So there's a lot of mass outside this visible galaxy, which would explain this. You can, you can figure out, you can do calculations to figure out how much mass is needed to keep the curve from actually starting to go down. You can do that. Or it tells us that you know Newton and Einstein and gravity, something else works differently on these very large scales. That they don't quite explain how things move properly. So could you come up with a brand new, you know, brand new theory of gravity or something to, ex- to explain it? That would be another way to do it, to sort of get around the idea of dark matter. I'm one of these before I forget. Go. So there's two different things. The, the best thought right now is that there's no reason to throw out you know, Einstein's gravity, which works so well and so, so exactly for everything else. So it seems like there is a lot more matter that is invisible, that we cannot detect. That's what we're calling the dark matter. And it's dark, meaning that we can't see it. It's not stars, so it's not something visible light that you can see. It can't just be big clouds of, of hydrogen gas because we could detect those in radio waves. It has to be something that's not emitting any type of electromagnetic radiation that we can detect. Now there's more than one way to look at this. So instead of looking at it just one way, just looking at the rotation curves, we can also look at to try to determine the mass of a galaxy cluster. And to do that, we look at all the motions in the galaxy of the galaxies within the cluster at once. And within a cluster, some of those galaxies are moving towards us, some are moving away. You know, they're all orbiting around each other, just like within the, within the galaxy. Some stars are moving one direction, some are moving the other. Well, within a galaxy cluster, <coughs> you know, some stars would be moving away from you, some would be moving towards you, some would be moving this way. If you take averaging out that entire velocity, figuring out how, much, how fast they're moving, an astronomer can calculate how much matter is needed in that cluster so the galaxies don't fly apart, right? If you don't have enough mass there and these galaxies are moving at, you know, hundreds of kilometers per second, well, if they exceed the escape velocity of the cluster, what are they going to do? They're going to head off into space and the cluster will slowly diffuse over a long period of time, but not an infinitely long period of time. So it would mean that these clusters, if, if they're moving this fast and there's not enough matter there to contain them, to keep them bound, then over tens and hundreds of millions of years, they dissipate. That sounds like a long time, but again, 100 million years, then why are all the galaxy clusters still here? Why do we still see them all today if they would only last for 100 million years after they formed? There has to be a lot more matter there in order to keep these galaxies bound together. Because otherwise, this one's moving a little faster. Well, it just scooted off and it's no longer part of that cluster. And a million years later, this one goes off and that one. And over a long period of time, they'll slowly, they would slowly disappear. Yes, sir? So uh, dark matter is similar to um, a black hole in that they don't give off any electromagnetic It doesn't give off any electromagnetic radiation. Black holes would be one possibility for it. We'll look at that. You know, it could be one possibility. You could have, you know, but then you have to, how would you get all these black holes around? You know, you got one big one at the center. That one doesn't matter. We can account for that one in the mass. So it's what else could be around there. And it's a big, it is a big question that is a current topic of research. And it's, it's a big problem. Because when we look at this, when you look at a specific galaxy, like our galaxy, 
depending on the exact one and the observations that you're doing to explain those rotation curves, you have your mass of your galaxy, you know, hundreds of millions of solar masses there. You have to have between 3 and 10 more of those outside what you see in order to explain what we, we get. So not just, you know, our galaxy and we need a few stars up here to just balance it. It's not that. You need for every star you see in the galaxy, you need between 3 and 10 stars worth of matter around that galaxy. That's a lot of mass. You know, that's more, significantly more than what the galaxy is made up of itself. What we're used to seeing is the galaxy. So we need a lot of matter to, in order to explain it. Clusters get even worse. When we look at those clusters, in order to keep them bound together, we need between 10 and 100 times more mass. So again, for every galaxy you see in a cluster, then there has to be between 10 and 100 more galaxies worth of matter. Not just stars worth of matter, but galaxies worth of matter that we do not see. So it's actually, if you look at it, you, know, you need between 3 and 10 for each galaxy, but there needs to be even more dark matter associated with these clusters in order to explain why they don't fly apart. You know, in millions of years, tens of millions of years, why, why aren't they all gone and we don't see clusters, we just see galaxies randomly scattered over the sky. We don't. We see galaxies very tightly grouped into these clusters that we looked a little bit on last time and we'll see a little bit more here. And the big question is why don't we, why don't we see it? Why don't we see all this matter? Where is all of this matter that is keeping everything bound together? It's not a negligible amount. It's not like, oh, we just need an extra galaxy worth of matter in this cluster. That wouldn't be such a big deal. You could account that to measurement, you know, measurement errors. But when you're seeing so much mass and you need 10 more of those or 100 more of those to, to balance it, to keep it close, that's a lot of mass that you're trying to account for. And it's a big problem in trying to figure out where that mass actually is and what it is. We can sort of map out where it is. We just still don't know what it is. Okay, so a little aside here on galaxy collisions. And I've given, you this, I've given you some of these examples before, but the separation between galaxies is usually very small. Galaxies are relatively close together compared to how big they are. So I've given you the example, you know, that stars don't collide but galaxies do. And I think I've mentioned the same thing. You know, take, take 10 big beach balls in this classroom and bounce them around. Well, they're going to bump into each other. Take 10 little beads. You know, that's even big for a star. Bounce them around here, they're probably never going to hit each other. You know, maybe, yeah. Can't, can't say it will never happen, but not very likely. But that means that galaxies, collisions are frequent. That does happen a lot. And you get some things like this, where a galaxy has probably, maybe one of these galaxies has recently collided with it, astronomically speaking, and sort of made this what we call the cartwheel galaxy. So you have this very big ring material that is very intensely blue a lot of star formation currently going on. More star formation than you'd see in a typical galaxy. So not just is the shape very unusual. So it looks like a peculiar galaxy. I mean, it doesn't look like a spiral galaxy. doesn't look like an elliptical galaxy. doesn't look like any of the galaxies I've talked to you about. Yes? Wouldn't that be classified under an irregular galaxy? It would be irregular or called peculiar. Sometimes it's given if it's like close to one, like you might call it a disk galaxy, so it has some sort of spiral characteristics, you might call it a peculiar spiral galaxy. But yeah, that or an irregular galaxy. But it's very different. There's something odd going on with it. And that is a lot of the irregular galaxies are something that probably associate with collisions. That it's distorted. That if this collision hadn't occurred, this might have looked like a normal spiral galaxy. 
but something happened that changed that. But we see a lot of evidence for these collisions in the universe. So they occur very often. I mean, again, nothing that you're actually going to watch and see. You're not going to be able to watch two galaxies collide in real time because the collisions take, you know, millions of years. They come together and they collide and they leave. But you know, we're not going to be able to see it. We just get to see ones, either the remnants of them that occurred many millions of years ago, or we see ones that are in the process of colliding. You know, sort of like a snapshot of it. You got it frozen in the middle of a collision in terms of our short lifespans. You see it frozen in the space of just a very short part of the collision. And again, we have to try to put all that together to figure out what happens with these collisions. Here's another example where two galaxies are colliding. And you can't tell, I know you can't tell from the image, but they are both undergoing bursts of star formation. They are both forming more stars. So what, how we tell that is by looking at the types of stars you see there. And in a typical spiral galaxy all by itself, you see so many of each different type of star. Here you see a lot more of the blue stars, a lot more blue, a lot more young stars. So there's an enhanced burst of star formation going on. We also think that galaxies over time, they don't stay there. These collisions, sometimes these collisions, you know, like the one we looked at before, it almost passes through. It looked like it splashed through that galaxy. This one may actually merge eventually, come back in 100 million years, and there might be one galaxy here. The two cores would combine, and the rest of the stars, and eventually you'd have one, okay, maybe relatively normal looking galaxy, as things have had you know, millions of years to fade and come back to, you know, come back to some kind of normalcy. The antenna galaxy, there's a nice example of a collision. This is actually the image here. So this is what you see in the sky. And there's two galaxies here and then big streams of material going out from each one. And what we think, the example there on the other side, skip the middle picture for right now, but if you go to the other side, that's a computer simulation. So astronomer took and made two computer galaxies with a whole bunch of stars in them collided them together. Now you can watch it in real time, right? Now you can actually watch. You'll speed up the time and watch them come close to each other and see what happens. And you can actually see where they're collided. There's two nuclei here. There's the two. And then they have streams of material. If you adjust how they hit each other, you know, how do they, they strike like this? Do they strike, you know, what angles do they hit each other? You can adjust all those parameters in your simulation and try to, you know, figure out can you reproduce it? So that's something that can be definitely, is it exactly the same? No. It's a little too symmetrical, but the galaxies might not have been as symmetrical in the first place. You know, one might have been a little bigger than the other. There's a lot of different things that you could still change. But we could reproduce things like that, you know, in a theoretical, in a theoretical basis, looking at, you know, how you can collide galaxies together. And there is, I think there's even, you know, We've got apps for everything. There's actually an app to collide galaxies together now. I think there's a galaxy, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but there is a galaxy collision app where you can change some of these parameters and you know, collide two galaxies together on your iPod, iPad, whatever. You can actually collide a couple of galaxies together and do something. It's not, not near as technical as the astronomers do, but you get to play with it a little bit, which is kind of, kind of interesting. So that's an example of what we can do. What the central picture is showing is just you're looking in, you're looking in at these cores here. So we're the two star, we're the two galaxies. You know, this is the core of one galaxy, the core of another galaxy. 
and you're seeing those two very, very close together, and they're seeing what they call superstar clusters, very, very big star clusters. So enhanced by the star formation because of this collision, because of these two galaxies smashing together, you know, the galaxies crash together, the gas clouds are real big too, they crash together. When you compress the, star, the gas clouds, they start to form more stars. So they enhance star formation, form these much bigger clusters, a lot more stars than normal. And that's what we're seeing right here. Again, if you could come back later, come back in 100 million years, you know, what will happen? Will these two coalesce together and become one galaxy and become something much more calm looking than the, the instant we happen to be catching it? You know, in, you know, our astro in our little life here on Earth, the little bit we happen to be catching of it. So what is actually going to happen? No, will they collide together? Will they spread apart? You know, come back in 100 million years and we'll see. We'll see what they look like then. And the computer simulations can give you some, I some ideas as well of what, as what might happen. And we see that sometimes galaxies can collide, they can stick together, or they can actually just you know, pass through each other depending on the exact conditions that you have going into it. Now how galaxies formed, and I, when we looked at the Hubble, we looked at the tuning fork diagram, right? Had all the, we had the elliptical galaxies here from the big round ellipticals to the flatter ones. You had the lenticulars and you split off into two spirals. And I think I mentioned that that used to be thought maybe that's how the galaxies evolved, which is not, which is not correct. We now think that it's actually formed through mergers. That actually a long time ago when galaxies first formed, there were lots of little tiny irregular galaxies which slowly combined together, combined together, combined together to build up bigger and bigger galaxies. So we don't think that it just formed when the universe formed that big giant ellipticals formed, big giant spiral galaxies formed all at once. That it formed, and when you look at these, when we look at some of these very old, uh, very, very distant, very, very young, very, very distant galaxies, a lot of them are very irregular and some of these are very large star clusters. Again, you're talking 5 billion parsecs away. So you're way out, you're getting out towards the very edge of the universe. 5 billion parsecs. You're talking, you know, right at the very edge of the universe. These might be some very large star clusters that formed that actually sort of led to the irregulars that led to the other galaxies so that it was sort of a progression in time. Now the nice thing with astronomy is that you have that chance to look back in time. So we can look back at the edge of the universe. We can see things as they were 13 billion years ago. And we can see that you know, when we look very early in the history of the universe, there weren't, lot, there weren't any big giant elliptical galaxies. There weren't any big giant spiral galaxies. It was more little, blob, little tiny blobs. So even when you look out at that distance, that's one of the nice things because light takes so much time to travel, that 13 billion years from the distance, from the distant, you know, distant edges of the universe, we can actually look back and see what were things like in the universe 13, 14 billion years ago. Which we can't do locally. We can only look at the very distant, of course, but we can't look. But we think that's, and we think that's what happened. So if you look at the field here, it's showing sort of an image of some of these galaxies. And what we think is they were smaller, tended to be smaller, and they slowly build up, and the small galaxies would get eaten. You know, collide together, a couple would collide together. Eventually they'd form a bigger galaxy and that would form bigger and then for some reason, we'll look at that, you might form a spiral galaxy out of it or you might form an elliptical galaxy and as you form bigger ones, they'd be more likely to eat the other little galaxies around them. In fact, our small satellite galaxies will probably eventually be consumed by the Milky Way. 
you know, they've lasted this long, but eventually they will come too close or they'll get disrupted gravitationally and will be consumed into part of our, galax our galaxy. But you might be seeing here the very early history, the very early history of a galaxy, what a galaxy was like a long, long time ago. Now the Hubble Deep Field is looking out into, very, into areas that don't have a lot of galaxies, don't have anything really bright in the foreground, so you can look really, really deep and really, really far away. And you're looking at some very distant galaxies, and when you look at them, these, the numbers, and I didn't label it, didn't label it there, they're showing what we call the redshift. Essentially it's telling you how far away the galaxy is. The bigger the number is, the further away that galaxy is. So something with a 0.2 is a relatively close galaxy, and these much further ones, threes, twos, and threes, are much more distant galaxies. And what astronomers find by studying a number of different fields like this and looking out there at the, very, at the most distant galaxies is that when you look back early in time and you count galaxies, you can say that, okay, they were, there were a lot of elliptical galaxies. There were more elliptical galaxies than you see nearby us. Elliptical, irregular, sorry, misspoke there. When you look back, you see a lot of irregular galaxies. When you look nearby us, you see a lot more ellipticals and spirals. So ellipticals and spirals were very rare a long time ago. And again, you're seeing that whole stretch of time all merged together when you're looking here. When you can separate out and get the redshifts and find out and look at these very most distant galaxies, we find most of them are small, irregular galaxies. So it sort of supports our theory that galaxies form by merging together over time. So we don't see, if you look way back, way out, in the, you don't see these giant elliptical galaxies that we see today. So we think that perhaps they form through mergers over time. Here's a couple examples of starburst galaxies. And again, more, collision, more collisions in terms of them colliding together. And when you look at the first couple, there's a couple galaxies. You can see a couple galaxies here, perhaps here and here, uh, where they're colliding together. And again, more evidence of collisions, galaxies colliding together and undergoing bursts of star formation, using up a lot of the gas and dust that are in those, in those to form new stars, and creating, possibly, you know, if they merge together, creating a new galaxy. So you could have two small, irregular galaxies collide together and over time build them up to a larger galaxy and depending on perhaps the process by which those galaxies combined form either an elliptical or a spiral galaxy depending on the exact process that went on. So there might be two different, two different ways you can collide the galaxies together depending on whether you know all a bunch of little galaxies collide together, maybe it forms one type of galaxy and if you form two of those and you smash two big galaxies together it might do something different and form a different type. And I'll look, I'm going to show you a chart of that in just a, just a minute or two here. Here's an example of a galactic cannibal, so great big Great big galaxy here, but when you look at it in the center, so you know, use the box here, you kind of zoom in and try to get a better resolution with like Hubble or something where something where you can really see the detail in the core. It doesn't have one core, it doesn't even have two, it has three. So there's actually three central cores to this one, what looks like one giant elliptical galaxy here, but actually has three different cores to it. Eventually those will probably merge together. But it's probably evidence that different galaxies, a couple different galaxies have combined together. There might have been one large galaxy there in the first place, but it's now consumed a relatively good-sized galaxy and another much smaller galaxy, 
it may have consumed those by its gravity. So it may have just swept them in and collected, again, collected more material. And then those three would then eventually coalesce and make one core. So we're catching it in the process of still, still the process of the collision. We're catching it in that process and being able to see. And again, that's what you're seeing in all of this. You're seeing each of those different steps. You know, I can't sit there and give you one galaxy. I can show you computer simulations, but I can't show you, you know, let's sit here and watch this galaxy that started colliding, you know, 100 years ago and show it to you each year. You know, over 100 years, it hasn't changed from our perspective. We're not going to notice it changing in 100 years. We could come back 100 years from now, this is still going to look exactly the same. These three aren't going to coalesce in 100 years. A million years? Yeah. Come back in a million years and look at the same galaxy and you'll probably see that, oh, there's only one core there. We wouldn't have known the difference. You wouldn't have known for sure exactly how it occurred. So it's only that we can see all these different steps and try to piece together what must be happening to form the larger galaxies. Now here's an example of trying to create a spiral galaxy. So you had two galaxies here. One big galaxy, one small galaxy. And if you hit them together just right in the simulation, so in this case if you hit one kind of on the edge, and come around it. Here's a possibility. I told you we didn't really understand spiral arms. Well, here's a possibility that you can actually create some sort of spiral structure from none. So you had no spiral structure here, just an irregular blob of galaxies. If you hit them just right, you hit them in the right pattern, then you can actually create some kind of spiral structure. And then the good question is how long will that spiral structure, will it last for a long time once you formed it? It looks like it will just because we see spiral galaxies still around today. So if, spiral, if this happened and it formed the spiral galaxy but that then dissipated, you know, it might be like you think of it like almost a permanent, permanent traffic jam. right? You always go through the same issue no matter when you come back. Once you create the traffic jam, it's there. It's not going anyplace. Well, that might be the similar thing that's here. Once you create it and make that, spiral gal spiral gal make that into a spiral galaxy, future collisions may only serve to enhance it. So they might actually enhance the spiral structure, contribute to the star formation, and sort of you know, make that traffic jam worse. Okay. All right, into black holes and back into active galaxies. There's a couple images here that are showing you some what we think are two supermassive black holes that are orbiting each other. So you're looking in visible and then in x-rays. And if you're looking very, very close into the center, now there's possibly, you can, watch, you can almost watch the motions, you can get measurements of the motions there, in here. You can measure how fast they're moving. They're only about a thousand parsecs away from each other, I should say, not from us, a thousand parsecs away from each other. That's about 3,000, 3,500, about 3,200 light years. So they're still pretty far, they're still well apart. But they're slowly, gonna, they're slowly coalescing to each other. They're orbiting each other. As they go through all this gas and dust material, it slows them down a little bit. So their orbits start to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Eventually they will merge in about 400 million years. Got to wait a while to, to actually see it. You know, what's going to happen? What happens when two black holes merge? You know, be a very interesting thing. Obviously not too much because anything within the event horizon of the two, you're not going to see. So, you know, some massive explosion could go on way deep inside that event horizon. It doesn't come out for us to see. But what happens with the accretion disks and all that material going together might be something interesting to be able to, to watch. 
But this is one that they expect, you know, in about 400 million years based on the measurements of how fast they're moving right now. So you can tell how fast they're moving, that maybe they're slowing down a little bit, that their orbits are getting slightly smaller, and you can estimate 400 million years. Yeah. Is it going to be 450 million years? Is it going to be three, you know, can't tell you exactly. Can't just set your time machine to come back in 400 million years and look and see if anything's still there. You'd have to, you know, it's not that precise of a number. That's just an estimate as to the time frames and, typ and typical of most of what we've done in astronomy. Question, sir? Do you think it matters um, which one is larger? Which one is larger in terms of how they'll combine? Yeah. It shouldn't matter too much. I mean, unless there's a big difference in mass, it might that one would be orbiting another. But if they're similar, I mean, the orbits are the same, whether one is a big mass or one is a little mass, it would still, the orbit would essentially be. It's just where the center of mass would change. So one's orbiting closer to the around and one's orbiting bigger. But it really wouldn't make, you know, if one's a little bit bigger than the other, it really wouldn't make any difference in what's going to, going to happen. Here's another galaxy um, looked in the radio portion of the spectrum. And again, we're looking very, very in very, very close to the galaxy. When you look at this portion is 2,000 parsecs. That's a big chunk of our galaxy. That would be like a big chunk of our galaxy. This central portion that you're looking at, way deep down in here, is about 2 tenths of a parsec. One parsec is about 3 light years. That's about half a light year. So that's relatively close to the, I mean, in terms of the distances, if you think about it in our solar system, that's, you know, not even a, that's what, about an eighth of the way to the nearest star. About half, of, about half a light year, so if the nearest star is four light years away, so about an eighth of the distance to the nearest, that's a pretty small distance compared to everything we've been talking about so far. You're looking down real close, you know, in the, in our solar system, there's, you know, one star in that range, one star and a couple planets. But when we look at these and we measure the shifts, so we measure the hydrogen gas that is down there very close to whatever this object is. We get a tremendous redshift on one side that's moving away and a tremendous blue shift on the other side that's moving towards you. So it's moving extremely fast. There has to be a lot of material condensed into this central core in order to cause it to move that fast. There's got to be a lot of material there. Not just you know, one solar mass, not just 10, not just 100, a real big star, but you have to be talking about many millions to billions of times the mass of the sun. We can tell how, much, how fast it's moving. We know how much material has to be there inside that orbit in order to account for that. And we see this. We see this in a number of different cases where we see very, very high speeds, very close in a very, very small range. And I know, you know, half a light year, it's a long way. You know, we can't travel half a light year, right? Can't come close to traveling. It's hard enough to travel a couple astronomical units away from the sun. But it's still an incredibly small distance when you're talking about how fast things are moving. You know, things around the sun wouldn't come close to moving at the speeds that you measure. And if you put even a larger star, a hundred solar mass star there, it wouldn't do it. You'd need many millions of solar masses compressed into that very small region. Well, you can't just put a million stars between us and one light year even. Just say, you know, one light year. You can't put a million stars. Yeah, they'd fit, but they wouldn't be stable. You wouldn't have anything that would be gravitationally stable. They'd coalesce together. And if you put a whole bunch of stars together, you're going to form a black hole. So one way or another, it seems like there's a lot of evidence that there are black holes at the centers of these galaxies. And this is just one more piece of it looking again at the shifts from the 
from the gas moving around that central core. Now when we look at them, we look overall, we make a nice little graph here showing the mass of a black hole in the center of a galaxy versus the mass of the bulge. So how much mass is, how many mass, how much mass is in the bulge? In this case, millions, something like the Milky Way, almost 10 million solar masses. Some galaxies are significantly bigger. And again, that's just the bulge of the galaxy. That's not the whole galaxy. That's just the bulge of the galaxy. And what it's saying is that the bigger the bulge of the galaxy is, the bigger the black hole contained in it. The Milky Way has something that about three, solar, three million solar masses. So, and if you look at it, we got, got a relatively small black hole. We got a tiny black hole compared to some of these other ones that we're looking at. I mean, three million solar masses. Here's 10 million, 100 million, a billion. You're talking more than a billion times the mass of the sun. So there can be black holes that have as much as mass as the entire, ga our entire galaxy. There are some incredibly large black holes, which again may be due to some of these collisions that occurred early on. But there does seem to be a relationship that the bigger the galaxy, the bigger the bulge of the galaxy, the bigger the, um, bigger the black hole that is measured to be at the center. Is it perfect? No, it doesn't look like exactly a straight line, does it? I mean, it's, some are close down here, but some things like the Milky Way are smaller black hole than they should. Some things have a bigger black hole than they should. And might have to do with the different collisions they've had. You know, maybe some have had more collisions and have had time to collect more material. Maybe something like the Milky Way just hasn't had the time to gather enough material to form a large black hole. Or it just didn't have as much material around it to form from. Quasars. Quasars are really the center of a distant galaxy. So they look very much like a star. It's how they got their name. They were a quasi-stellar radio source. That's where the name quasar came from. So quasi-stellar means they look like a star. So astronomers took images of these and it looked like just like any other star on their pictures, on their images. But they didn't behave like a star. They were way too energetic. They had a lot, giving off a lot of energy. And they were I said, they were, they were way too energetic. They gave off the wrong types of radiation. They emitted a lot of radio radiation. Stars don't emit radio waves, typically. Not much. These did, emitted a lot of radio waves. In fact, the first ones that were discovered were discovered by radio telescopes because they emitted so much radio radiation, but there was nothing there. When the optical astronomers went to look, all they'd see was a star. Now, what we've seen is that as we look closer to them, if we're able to look closer and in more detail, we still have the quasar there, but you're actually starting to see some of the detail that there actually is something around it. So when we can look at them in much more detail, we can see that there actually is part of a galaxy around it that we didn't see because the center was overwhelming it. So that center normally would overwhelm it. As we get better and better at looking at these, we can actually see that there is sort of a galaxy around there. When we look at a quasar, we're looking, if you remember, they were, they were some of the most distant objects. They're very, very far away, and that means they don't exist anymore. They're gone. Right? We see them, right? but we see them all as they were 10 billion years ago. If we look nearby to us, we don't see any quasars. So quasars don't exist close to us. They've all gone away. So there, we think they're a very early stage of the formation of galaxies. That 10 billion years ago, 11, 12, there were a lot of quasars around. Where are they today? They can't just, you know, they disappeared, they combined into other things. 
somewhere, somewhere along the way, they're not, being, they're not feeding their beast anymore, right? That central beast at the center, that black hole, is not getting any energy. So even though that black hole could be lurking around here someplace, you know, it's there, it's at the center of the galaxy, it's just not being fed, so it's not giving off any energy. But in that early stage when there were lots of collisions, these occurred, again, a long time ago, so as lots of galaxies were colliding together, well, guess what? You're putting a lot of material in towards that black hole, in towards the disk around the black hole, and emitting a lot of energy. And that's what we saw as quasars. Again, we still see them today, yeah, but not in the present time. You see them only when we look back towards the edge of the universe, when we see things as they were in the cases of these quasars at least 10 billion years ago. So you're looking way back in time when you, when you see these. And I think I just gave you the time there, 10 billion years ago, the end of the quasar epoch. And after that, we don't see any quasars. So if we look at things that are a billion light years away, we don't see any quasars. We look at things that are 2 billion, 5 billion, we don't see any quasars there. They're only at this very, very early stage. What happens? So where did they go? The black hole that's giving us all this energy doesn't just, didn't just go, okay, I'm done, I'm gone, I'm disappearing, it's still there. So that's why we think that most, if not every single galaxy, has a supermassive black hole at its center. And again, things that's, you know, millions of solar masses, billions of solar masses, and such. Now, that said, this doesn't help us at all with the dark matter problem, because this is all at the center of the galaxy. So we're still working at the center of the galaxy. Dark matter was saying there had to be a lot of matter beyond where those stars are orbiting. So there has to be a lot of matter dark that's all around the galaxy, not concentrated at the center. If it's concentrated at the center, we can account for it. We can account for that in its motion because it's all within the orbit. But we do think that almost all galaxies, maybe not, well, I shouldn't say every galaxy, there probably are some, typically every large galaxy is thought to have a black hole at the center. So any big spiral galaxy, any big elliptical galaxy. The ones that might not have a supermassive black hole are things like the little dwarf galaxies and the irregular galaxies that may not have formed a black, they might not have had any a big condensation towards the center. They might over time as things collide and you form black holes with, and you form more black holes with them. You know, so they might, if everything started out as an elliptical as a determined to do that, not as an elliptical, as an irregular galaxy, then those would not have had a massive black hole maybe, but then as they collided, you started to form one, and once you form that black hole, anything that goes towards the center feeds it, gives up all that energy, and grows the black hole. The black hole will get larger and larger. So not just in size, physical size really, but in terms of mass, it will continue to get larger. So that's what we think we're seeing, but we're seeing it, we're looking, a long time, we're looking a long time ago. When we see quasars, we're looking well back in the history of the universe. And again, that's going to be the subject of our next chapter that's going to talk really about the whole history of the universe. So here's what we think, how we think galaxies may have evolved into spirals and ellipticals that we see today. So there's our normal spiral galaxy. There's a normal elliptical galaxy. How do we get there? Well, if we start off, remember, we looked way back, we saw irregular galaxies, pretty much irregular galaxies only. Lots of irregular galaxies when you looked way back in time. As those combined together, you would form, maybe you get enough, you'd start feeding that, you start create a black hole. So you combine a couple of these irregular galaxies together, and as you put more and more material together, you start to form a black hole at the center. Some of the material gets concentrated at the center. You start forming a relatively small black hole. 
might be, you know, start off with a few solar masses, tens, hundreds, thousands, ten thousand, hundred thousand. It grows as you keep doing these collisions, and I'm not just talking about two collisions, but there's, you know, these collisions and this, all these little ones going together. And eventually, as you feed that more and more, you start to form a galaxy, and you might form a quasar. So what we think you might do is that if you form quasars through these collisions, you've been putting a lot of irregular galaxies together, forming a central black hole, feeding that black hole gives off a lot of energy, causes that brightness, incredible brightness at the center, here, and that we see as a quasar. So again, this all happened in the first couple billion years of the universe. Then, how do we get to the galaxies we see from the quasars? Add, the collisions don't stop. The collisions are still ongoing today. But what might have happened is that you could have had either a major merger. You might have had two quasars collide together. Boom, you know, smash two quasars together and form what we call a radio galaxy. We looked at those, right? Two jets coming out material of material. So smash two quasars together and you might get a radio galaxy which would eventually, it's emitting a lot of energy right now as you're feeding that black hole, but over time the black hole gets fed, oh, there's not much material left around it, the accretion disk dies down, and it's, no, it's still there, no longer near as energetic as it was, and it might turn into what we see as a normal elliptical galaxy. And it wouldn't do much else unless there's some kind of collision to start feeding it again, start putting more material in that black hole. Because remember, the black holes are not the little monsters. They're gonna, everything's going to orbit around them. It's not going to affect the galaxy, except for that very, very close central portion. It's, once you're further, further out, like the sun, the sun will continue to orbit around. It's orbiting around a black hole right now. It doesn't care whether there's one giant black hole in there or if it's a whole bunch of stars contributing to the gravity. So between one type of collision, smashing two quasars together, might go through the radio galaxy phase and form an elliptical galaxy. Or you might have that quasar, and we looked at this last time, instead of hitting it, hitting it with another quasar, you might keep hitting it with, with uh, small irregular galaxies. And that may do that sort of pushing it and form the spiral structure. So you might form first a Seifert galaxy. Remember a Seifert galaxy looked like a spiral galaxy, but it was emitting a lot more energy at the core. So that's still that black hole being fed from these mergers as you threw more material, more gas, more dust, more stars in towards that black hole. And again, what happens? Eventually it calms down, turns into a regular spiral galaxy without much going on at the core. Black hole's still there, so still have a black hole there, but not really doing, not really doing a whole lot. It doesn't, do, it doesn't have a whole lot going on there at this point. So that's just sort of one of the theories. No guarantee that I'm telling you it's right and that if you came and took the class in five years or ten years again, I might give you a different theory as to what astronomers are working on now. But this is their current theory as to how we think we formed normal, and elli normal elliptical and normal spiral galaxies. Good question might be why do some of the spirals have bars? You know, what was that, remember those barred spirals? And some of them had a very distinct bar going through the center, which is another good question. But since we're still trying to figure out how spiral arms form in the first place, Trying to get down to the details of how the bars formed is even harder. So try to get a why, why do some of them form a bar and some of them not is a very good question. But this sort of just explains the differentiation between the two. Why there are some elliptical galaxies and some spiral galaxies. 
All right, look at the larger scales. We have our local group here. You find us hiding in the center there? There's us, little teeny tiny. And that's not, that's not our solar system, that's not our galaxy, that's our whole group of 40 some galaxies, which is us and the Andromeda galaxy and a whole bunch, and another spiral galaxy and a whole bunch of you know, smaller galaxies. That's our, we're sort of right at the edge of this Virgo cluster of galaxies. But when we look, and this is again only the nearest galaxies to us, we're only looking at about 100 million parsecs. You know, she loves saying about only 100 million parsecs. You know, it takes, it takes light over 300 million years to get, you know, travel that distance. But when we look at them, we can map out where they are and we can see that galaxies seem to not be randomly scattered. Now this comes back to that dark matter we mentioned. Remember I said that if the galaxies were, if the clusters weren't bound together, then eventually galaxies would just spread out and you'd just have, you know, galaxy, galaxy. You, you wouldn't have any structure like this. But there does seem to be structure in the universe, that galaxies seem to be concentrated in certain areas. Here's a whole bunch of galaxies. In fact, the Virgo cluster is just part of another large supercluster here. There's the whole supercluster. And there's another large cluster down here, over in Perseus, Coma, labeled by constellations, so just in the constellations in which they happen to occur. But there seem to be areas where there's lots of galaxies, and there seem to be other areas where there's you know, hardly any galaxies. And we'll see that as we go through the universe. There's our areas where there's lots of galaxies and there's areas where there are big areas where there's hardly any galaxies. They seem to be grouped together so there seems to be a very big structure to the universe. So it seems like there is, has to be some kind of dark matter holding it together because otherwise just our measurements say that you know, the Virgo cluster should fly apart. The galaxies are moving too fast. They're exceeding the escape velocity. Well, they're just going to spread out. And over astronomical time scales, that means that some of them would leave and they'd be here. There'd be no reason for those big gaps where there's no galaxies. So there must be something that is actually keep helping to keep these bound together in these big clusters and superclusters. And if we look in a little more detail, a um, little bit smaller detail. This is the Virgo cluster here. And you start to see when you look at, at it on the sky, there again, there's areas where there's lots of galaxies. Galaxies tend to be grouped together. Groups here, groups here. There's other areas, voids, where there's hardly any galaxies. Now unlike when we looked in our galaxy, that's not due to dust you know, blocking out material that we can't see. There's no sign of anything like that. It's just simply areas where there's no, no galaxies. So no galaxies here, or hardly any. Hardly any galaxies here, hardly any over here, but a big grouping here, here's a group, here's a group, here's a group. All sorts of groupings of galaxies. They tend to cluster together. So galaxies tend to cluster the, together just the way stars tend to cluster together to form galaxies. Well, galaxies cl cluster together to form clusters and superclusters of galaxies. So there seems to be this structure, again, a structure in the universe. And if we look out even bigger, we have, again, you have what we call walls, sort of st strings of material, almost. So a string of material going across here. This red one is called the Great Wall. If you look out at a certain distance, certain recessional velocity. It's plotted as velocity, but it's the same as distance when you use Hubble's law. 
then if there's this sort of wall going across at almost this certain distance, a lot of galaxies there. Some beyond it, there's some galaxy clusters. But again, you see the whole idea of it is you see areas where there's lots of galaxies and you see areas where there's very few galaxies. So you do see some sort of structure. You see the guy standing there, right? Head, legs, arms standing out. Okay. So you know, depending on your imagination can do amazing things to you, right? You, know, you can put a pattern to anything. Same way we got all the constellations. You know, someone said, oh, that looks like something. But the idea is there's voids. There are a lot of areas. You know, there's a whole big section here where there's hardly, there's none to hardly any galaxies. So the galaxies are concentrated in very certain areas. And that is that on this type of scale, there is a structure to the universe. You can see areas where there's more galaxies and areas where there are far fewer galaxies. Going out even further, if you look where we were looking before, we were in, you know, in a closer area down here. But when you start to look out further, you lose that structure. Okay, remember we saw the walls and voids are still there. But when you get out much, much further, it almost looks like a little frothy appearance, you know, bubbly appearance almost. You know, you've got, if you think about it as a bunch of little bubbles where there's galaxies around the edges of the bubbles and there's areas where there's hardly any galaxies. That's almost what you tend to see. You tend to see a lot of voids where there's hardly any and a lot of concentrations where there are. But there isn't any big structure. When you look at these large, when you look very, very far out, you don't see big structures going across large chunks of the universe. There's no sign. The, the universe is pretty much the same. Wherever you look, in certain points, if you look out far enough, it looks pretty much the same in every direction, no matter where you're looking. If I look and take this big chunk of the universe and this big chunk of the universe, are they exactly the same? No, you could go and look at the details. But overall, are there about as many galaxies here as there are here? Pretty much, and they're pretty much randomly spread out within that section. The only thing that you do see here is that it seems like as you go further and further out, you know, lots of galaxies here, very few galaxies. Well, that's just because you're getting so far out in the universe that it gets harder and harder to see the little galaxies. So you're missing a lot of the galaxies when you look out that far. So when you look towards the top or the bottom of this image, you know, the reason you're not seeing too many galaxies when you get out here, because you're approaching you know, towards the edge of the universe and not able to see, you're not able to see a lot of the faint galaxies. But in just here, if you just pick, you know, take a good sized square and just look at or circle and just take some of these, section there and a section there, they really look overall, statistically, they'll look about the same. There's really little difference between any, you know, big area, a couple hundred megaparsec area of the galaxy and another one. They all look essentially the same. Okay. Coming back down to the dark matter a little bit more. How do we know, what can we know about the dark matter? Well, this is a double quasar. Let me double quasar. Is the quasars colliding? Are we seeing the quasars colliding? You know, great. No. They were found to be not only a double quasar, they were found to almost be two identical. That this one got brighter and that one got brighter. And that one got fainter and that one got fainter. So actually, they're not two quasars. They're the same quasar. It's two images of the same quasar. So, same, qua same quasar, not just the identical one, but two images of the same one. So what is causing this? Why are we getting two images of the same quasar? 
Not just one, but their variations are the same. So first it was like, oh, nice double quasar we can study. But then you found out that one got brighter, and the other one got brighter. Not exactly with it, maybe you know, a short time later. Might be some kind of time lag between them, but not a lot. But if you looked at them and shifted their, watched their variations over a couple years, you'd see that all they were was shifted off a little bit. They were, one was getting brighter, the other one was getting brighter. One was getting fainter, the other was getting fainter. So really what you're seeing here is not one quasar, not just a single quasar, but actually one ima two images of the identical quasar. Now why are we seeing something like that? Well, it's all thanks to Einstein. And we looked at this and we talked about general relativity a little bit, but remember general relativity looked at gravity as a distortion of space-time. So you bent space. When light had to travel through a bent space, it curved. So when it had to pass close to the sun, it bent and it changed the positions of the stars. If you looked at the stars, you know, right when the sun's out, if you can block out the sun, such as during an eclipse, and look at the positions of the stars, they're off a little bit than they'd be when you're not looking near the sun. Well, now you can have a galaxy. When you're looking further out in the universe, you can actually have a galaxy in the way. And this galaxy may be lensing. So the, this, this, here's the one quasar, the single quasar. And as this travels, the light, this light is traveling out this way, gets bent towards us. This light that starts out traveling this way gets bent towards us. And we can end up seeing two images of it. One looks like it's over here, one looks like it's over there. So we can actually learn more about the quasar because of this. Because as I told you, there's not, they're not a, getting brighter or fainter at the same time because if you look at it, you know, this path is probably a little bit shorter than that path. So maybe there's an offset of weeks, months, years, depending on the actual difference of those two paths. But what this helps us to do is here's another way to be able to study the gravity of this object. Because in order to figure out how much it's bent, we have to know how much gravity is there, how much matter is there. And now we're measuring the entire mass of the galaxy. We're not measuring just a little bit of it, we're measuring the whole thing because we need it takes everything into account. So it helps us in terms of measuring the dark matter. Let me put one one more. Yeah, that should be good. One more image up. And this is actually done. Now you've got a galaxy here at the center. There's some distant quasar behind it, and we see it not once, not twice, three, four times. So depending on how perfectly lined up the two are, if you get things lined up very, very closely, you can actually make more than just two images. You can have, as shown here, you know, here's your distant quasar, and you have material being bent this way, and that way, and that way, and that way, and actually makes us four images of the quasar. You can get more and more. If you get it perfectly, if you actually had an ideal source lined up exactly in front of the other object, you would get actually a ring. You would get an entire ring of material around that, which we call an Einstein ring, you'd actually get the image of the quasar, instead of being just images, would be one whole ring around the galaxy, if you had everything perfectly lined up. And I'll show you a few more pictures of this next time. We're almost done with this, in fact, we're almost completely done with this chapter. But we'll finish this up on um, Thursday, and then we'll go back and do the rest of the, do the rest of the, start on the rest of the universe then. So, questions, questions? If not, I'll take, if you don't have homework or lab or exams, I just need them before the end of the day. So, have a good afternoon.